Soon after my wife and I first moved to North Carolina back in 2018, my driver's license was set to expire. Going to get a new license felt very symbolic. I was finally retiring my old Connecticut driver's license, a license I had managed to somehow hold on to despite not having lived in Connecticut for over a decade, and I was replacing it with a license from a southern state. I was, at least on paper, no longer a Yankee. Of course, waiting at the DMV took forever, and I soon became bored with the book that I brought along. Wandering through the lobby, my eyes fell upon the great seal of the state of North Carolina. Two women standing upon a green field between the mountains and the sea, and on the bottom of the seal, the state's Latin motto, which, as every good North Carolinian knows, is... Ah, you are such good North Carolinians. (laughs) Esse quam videre. To be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. The Latin phrase is most commonly attributed to Cicero's essay on friendship, where he writes, Few are those who wish to be endowed with virtue, rather than to seem so. Cicero's point is that most people would rather seem to be something than to actually be it. They would, ra- they would prefer to seem good than actually be good. They would rather have praise or public approval than do the right thing, regardless of how they were perceived. As far as states' mottos go, I quite like North Carolina's because unlike most which tend to be either self-aggrandizing or just run-of-the-mill, North Carolina's is actually a sort of challenge. It's setting a bar of moral conduct for all us North Carolinians. It is saying that here in this state, we expect people not just to talk the talk, but walk the walk, to do right for its own sake and not for recognition. In their own way, today's readings hold their own esse quam videre message, passages that highlight the shedding of pretension, that warn against hypocrisy, and model how exactly to walk the walk. In Genesis, we see Joseph finally dropping his charade and revealing himself to his brothers. The level of emotion and vulnerability Joseph displays is certainly against social customs and definitely not how people would expect a prominent and powerful member of the Egyptian court to act. Joseph clearly knows this, and this is why he sends his Egyptian servants out of the room so they don't see him in such a messy, unprofessional state. And yet, so loud are his cathartic cries that the household of Pharaoh hears it anyway. But you see, none of that matters. What actually matters is that a family has been reunited. They're embracing and crying and kissing one another. What what actually matters is despite all the betrayal and the treachery, God's grace has been at work nonetheless this whole time, and Joseph and his brothers now see that and experience that together. And in our gospel, we get two episodes from the chapter of the 15th chapter of Matthew 
that speak to this theme. First, we get the tail end of an encounter between the Pharisees, Jesus, and the crowd. The Pharisees challenge Jesus on why he and his followers don't follow washing practices. Jesus responds with his go-to critique of the Pharisees, that they are being hypocrites. Because while they insist on holding to these purity rituals, these rituals that are not found in the Torah but are specific to the Pharisee tradition, they are simultaneously disregarding critical laws from the Torah, most notably the need to honor one's parents. In short, they are inhabiting the opposite of Essequam Videre. They are privileging visible rituals that make them appear pious over works of justice and care that are the true marks of piety. This is where our reading picks up the story with Jesus highlighting this hypocrisy with his parable about food and handwashing and the gutter and speech. His point being, if you really care about defilement, if you really care about purity, don't let rituals or traditions get in the way of living out the heart of God's law. Care less about washing and more about your words because our words reveal the intentions of our hearts and from there stem our actions, both good and bad. Like all passages concerning the Pharisees, it's tempting to to imagine ourselves in the story on Jesus' side, somehow like standing behind Jesus, backing him up while he dunks on the Pharisees, right? And then we can rest in our own self-righteousness that we're on the right side. But this is, in fact, the exact opposite of where we should picture ourselves. Every time we see Jesus's criticisms of the Pharisees, we should assume he's talking directly to us. And in this case, Jesus's words ought to lead us to examine our own hypocrisy, our own failings to practice what we preach, and in particular, the way in which we let immaterial things, just habits or just the way things are, tradition, get in the way of what actually is critical. The second episode from our gospel involves a Canaanite woman who Jesus and his disciples encounter when they are traveling to Gentile territory. The woman's daughter is beset by a demon and she is asking Jesus for mercy. Jesus initially ignores and then rebuffs the woman, but she is insistent and Jesus eventually acquiesces and heals her daughter. To state the obvious, this is a difficult passage of Scripture because Jesus acts in a way that we wouldn't expect him to. He seems reluctant to help someone who is clearly in need, and then he uses derogatory language, comparing her to a dog. Now, there are a number of ways that scholars and saints throughout the ages have tried to make sense of this interaction. Perhaps some say Jesus was testing this woman and only testing her because he knew how strong she was and thus showing to what lengths she would go. Perhaps Jesus' actions and words simply reflect his culture, that this was the way that any Jew would have talked to any Gentile. Perhaps this story shows Jesus' own personal development, that Jesus needed this woman to challenge him and that that challenge helped him grow, grow into the fullness of his maturity and his ministry, which would stretch to all people. In this vein, perhaps we are best to understand this interaction symbolically. 
that the Canaanite woman represents how the gospel overcame the biases and the divisions of the time and spread from its Jewish origins into the Gentile world. Though I personally continue to struggle with this passage, and honestly, I am yet to encounter an interpretation that fully resonates with me, there is one thing that I know for sure about Jesus' behavior, and that's that it shines a light directly on the Canaanite woman. It draws all of our focus to her. She is the undeniable key, not only of this passage, but of this entire chapter. She is being held up as a model for us. By the end of the passage, not only will her daughter be healed, but Jesus will say that her faith is great, which is perhaps the highest praise that Jesus has to give to anybody. To think about how extraordinary this Canaanite woman is, consider how often in the Gospels people step, step up to debate or challenge Jesus. And think about how nearly all of them come out of that exchange looking like fools. The Pharisees, the scribes, rich men, learned lawyers, Jesus' own disciples are being routinely chastised. Remember back to last week's Gospel? Peter trying to walk on the water, faltering, and then Jesus saying to him, you of little faith, Well, that story, that passage, that's the story that directly precedes today's chapter from Matthew. And that's not a mistake. Right on the heels of Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle being called a person of little faith, here we have a complete outsider, someone from from Jesus' Jewish context who would have been totally beyond the fold, a foreigner, a woman, a pagan, and it is she who Jesus calls one of great faith. What's especially remarkable to me is the Canaanite woman's complete lack of pretension and her stubborn persistence. She must have caused quite a scene yelling after these strangers, but she doesn't care. She must have known that Jews and Gentiles never are to mix, especially across gender lines, but that doesn't stop her. Jesus' disregard and his dismissal must have stung, but she continues pursuing him nonetheless. She doesn't care how she's perceived. She doesn't care how strange she might appear. She doesn't care how things seem because she knows what really matters. And what really matters is her daughter and God's mercy and that mercy and showing that that mercy knows no divides and that no matter the depths or the person, it extends all of the way. Before working in ordained ministry, I worked on college campuses. And this time of year, late August, when students returned to campus, it was always exciting. I'm sure many of you have already felt it, that buzz on Franklin Street is back. Some of you, might, some of you are students yourself, you're back, and you can feel this energy as well that you're bringing to our community. But over the years, I also came to learn how stressful this time of year was for my students. Whether for those who were new to campus or those returning after a summer away, heading back to the quad came with all kinds of pressures. Academic pressures like making grades, professional pressures like securing internships, getting into grad school, social pressures, joining the right clubs, appearing cool, wearing the right things, fitting in, making friends. Most students felt the need to project a certain amount of self-confidence about all of these things, even if inside They felt anything but that way. The last school that I worked at was Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem. And the students there called this putting on their wake face. 
this, this daily facade that they would put on almost like makeup to try to project to the world that everything was okay. If only that ended in college. <laughs> no, seriously, right? All of us who are older, we know that this need to put up a facade lasts, the pressure to have the perfect family, the pressure to have the perfect career, the pressure for, for, for our friends, for our family, for everything to be okay all of the time. And listen, some of this comes from good intentions, it does. But let us not forget that the Pharisees have good intentions too. They're just trying to follow the law in the way they understand, and yet they still go astray. They still need correction. They still need a reminder to shift their focus on what really matters. Today's readings are an invitation for us to let that mask down, to, to not only simply be who we are, but to refocus on what really matters, to kneel before God and to be stripped of all that's immaterial and simply say, Lord, have mercy. Let us learn from Joseph and like him, allow our pretensions to melt away and be vulnerable. Let us learn from the Pharisees and allow ourselves to be corrected by Jesus' saving words and to examine our own hypocrisy. But most importantly, let us learn from the Canaanite woman. Let us be persistent and faithfully stubborn and focus unswervingly on God's mercy for us, for those we love, and for the whole world. Amen. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at The Chapel of the Cross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.